public comment period is about to close on the Department of Education's proposed new rules on sexual harassment and assault on campus, which Education Secretary Betsy DeVos released in draft form last November to replace Obama-era guidance she had withdrawn more than a year earlier. Among the proposal's most controversial elements? New requirements that schools hold live disciplinary proceedings on sexual misconduct allegations and that they allow both accusers and the accused to be cross-examined. Are these and other changes a victory for due process and freedom of speech? Or will they, as critics allege, prevent assault victims from coming forward and let schools off the hook for addressing a rape culture on campus? And what should we make of the fact that the proposed rules would, for the first time, distinguish between how K-12 schools and colleges must address the problem of sexual harassment? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Shep Melnick, the Thomas P. O'Neill Jr. Professor of American Politics at Boston College and author of the 2018 book, The Transformation of Title IX, Regulating Gender Equality in Education. He's also the author of a new article, New Title IX Rules Require Hearings, Cross-Examinations in Colleges, but Not in High Schools, which is available now at educationnext.org. Shep, welcome back to the Ednext podcast. Thanks for having me. I should mention that in addition to the Ednext article, you also just published a longer blog post on the proposed regulations with our friends at the Brookings Institution's Brown Center on Education Policy. And I'm hoping that our conversation today will touch on ideas in both of those pieces. Let's start by setting the context. In a nutshell, this debate is about what schools receiving federal funding must do to protect students from and respond to allegations of sexual harassment and assault. You write that one of the reasons why this question has remained unclear for so long is that the federal law in question, Title IX, says nothing about sexual harassment. So what is it that Title IX says that even makes this a federal policy issue in the first place? Good question. Uh, first of all, I should say uh, Title IX only says that institutions who receive federal funding can't discriminate on the basis of sex. Uh, so there are really two questions um, uh, that link Title IX to sexual harassment. The first is, why is sexual harassment or sexual assault a form of discrimination? Uh, it might be reprehensible, but why is it discrimination? Uh, and the courts and agencies have offered uh, the argument that if the harassment is aimed at a member of a particular sex, usually women, um, then it prevents um, women from receiving educational opportunity and therefore violates Title IX. So it is the limitation upon one's educational opportunity that is the link. The second issue, which I think um, is equally important and probably more complicated, is why is it that educational institutions are held responsible for the behavior of other students or of faculty members, especially when uh, much of that behavior takes place in private? So we've really gone from educational policies of institutions that limit opportunity to the school's responsibility to police thousands of students. Uh, faculty and staff, which is obviously a much more complicated undertaking. And we're here talking primarily about a proposed regulation from the Department of Education, but 
At first, as I understand it, it was judges rather than federal regulators who sought to answer these questions of when exactly educational institutions should be held responsible for sexual harassment on campus. First, why was it judges that were addressing this issue first, and, and what did they say? Sure. Um, actually, the, there were two big changes that took place. The first was that the, the regulations on sexual harassment first developed in the workplace, largely by federal courts, um, using Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and relying upon uh, some pretty basic understandings of liability and tort law. So the courts felt comfortable dealing with this because it looked like ordinary torts. They developed um, rules about when employers were liable for the misconduct of their employees. Uh, so that was the first step. The second step was that then uh, federal courts transferred a lot of those rules to uh, Title IX in the context of elementary and secondary schools. Uh, there were several Supreme Court cases and a large number of lower court cases on this. Um, and many of them involved really gross um, cases of assault and uh, repeated harassment. Some of them were cases involving uh, statutory rape. Uh, so the courts figured we've got to do something about this. Um, and they uh, passed into part Title IX and imported the Title VII rules. Uh, so that was stage two. And then stage three was uh, when the focus changed uh, to colleges, with much different context. The rules that were first applied to elementary and secondary schools were then transferred uh, and modified to apply to colleges. So it's an incremental uh, uh, process in which you go from judge-made rules to administrative rules, um, from employment to elementary and secondary schools, and then to colleges. So let's go back to those first key court decisions. I believe the Supreme Court addressed this question in the late 90s in a series of cases. Uh, and as you just pointed out, they dealt with elementary and secondary schools rather than colleges and universities. What exactly did the court say when it came to the question of when educational institutions should be held responsible for behavior that occurs on campus and and what they might need to do to uh, prevent such behavior from occurring? Right. That's a very important question because in two decisions in 1998 and 1999, the Gebser case and the Davis case, um, the, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, through Justice O'Connor, said that Title IX does make schools responsible for sexual misconduct by teachers and, and fellow students, but only, and this is a, a very important only, if they had, number one, actual knowledge of the misconduct, and number two, um, reacted with indifference. So they had to know about it, and they had to have a response that was clearly inadequate, and just to make sure there wasn't going to be uh, a lot of federal oversight, uh, the Supreme Court said that um, federal judges should uh, not try to second-guess the disciplinary proceedings of school systems. So that was a very lenient standard, significantly more lenient than other courts had said before, more lenient than in the employment context. Um, and that's when the Office for Civil Rights and the Department of Education 
and the courts started to go separate ways because uh, the Office for Civil Rights, in the very last day of the Clinton administration, uh, issued guide, new guidelines saying we're sticking by our older, tougher rules, um, that the court's rules apply only to suits for damages in court, and we have administrative power to issue a more demanding set of rules. So the Department of Education under President Clinton at the time could simply have incorporated the court standards into its own interpretation of Title IX, but it, it chose not to do so in the way that you just described. It said, we're going to apply a higher or stricter standard. What then would be the enforcement mechanism uh, by which the department would expect that to affect schools' behavior? Right. That's uh, another crucial question, uh, because in the past, uh, the Office for Civil Rights had relied very heavily on judicial enforcement of Title IX. The reason for that is that the statutory punishment for schools, which is losing all federal funds, was just too draconian to apply. Um, it was a nuclear weapon of enforcement. And in all of the years that Title IX has been in effect since 1972, the Office for Civil Rights has never revoked federal funds um, as an empty threat, and therefore they relied upon court enforcement. But when you break with the court, you give up court enforcement. Um, so from the, uh, the last day of the Clinton administration through 2010, um, there was basically no enforcement of these OCR regulations um, because they didn't have any particularly clear enforcement mechanism. And also the, the Bush administration um, was not sure that these midnight regulations were actually legally binding. So the regulation remains in place through the George W. Bush administration, and then that brings us into the Obama administration. And tell us about uh, how that administration sought to address the issue. Sure. Um, the Obama administration, and I say particularly Obama administration because this was an effort that was really led um, from the White House um, and to the office of the vice president, um, launched a, a really um, uh, quite well-publicized, intensive uh, campaign to try to address the problem of sexual assault on campus. And I emphasize on campus because colleges weren't very much uh, uh, in play in the previous rounds of regulation. Uh, the claim by the White House uh, and the Office for Civil Rights was there was an epidemic of rape and sexual assault on campus, which took, as they repeatedly said, a culture change on campus. Uh, the, this took two regulatory forms. The first was a 2011 Dear Colleague letter, um, really ratcheting up the demands on colleges, both procedurally um, as far as um, requiring a preponderance of the evidence, um, encouraging schools to have a single investigator make the investigation and make determinations of guilt rather than having hearings, um, and very extensive training for everyone on campus, um, and very extensive remedies for uh, people who were have been subjected to various forms of assault or harassment. Uh, that 2011 Dear Colleague letter 
was then supplemented in 2014 with a, a document that's called Questions and Answers about Sexual Assault, uh, over 50 pages of great, very great detail about how colleges should handle this. And the third part of the strategy was a series of very long, very expensive investigations of hundreds of colleges throughout the country. And this was really the response to the problem of enforcement. Uh, the agency figured out that the best way to enforce these guidelines, uh, since they couldn't go to court, was to have investigations that were reputation damaging for institutions um, and very expensive, both for OCR and for the college, and basically to use that leverage to get them to sign legally binding consent agreements uh, that many, many colleges did. So that's where we are right now. And so it was this guidance, and we say guidance rather than regulation because it did not go through the formal notice and comment process that the Obama administration released in 2011 that critics allege did not provide adequate due process for those accused of harassment and assault, uh, and that the Trump administration decided to rescind when it came to office. And that brings us to the department's current proposal. This is a proposal that has been praised in some camps for restoring balance, but also has provoked a firestorm of criticism from civil rights groups and congressional Democrats. Senator Patty Murray, the ranking Democrat on the Senate Education Committee, has accused the administration of, quote, sweeping the scourge of sexual assault under the rug, weakening protections for students and survivors, and allowing colleges and universities to shirk their responsibility to keep students safe. Those are uh, strong words, obviously. What are the most significant elements of the proposal and what's proving most controversial? So far, the most controversial parts have been the two that you mentioned, the requirement that schools hold live hearings um, in sexual assault disciplinary proceedings and that they allow cross-examination of uh, witnesses most importantly, the person raising the accusation. On the last part about cross-examination, let me just emphasize two points. Um, number one, um, they do not allow the uh, person being accused to cross-examination um, the person making the accusation. Um, so let's the typical case where um, a female student makes an accusation against a male student. That male student cannot cross-examine the female student. Um, it has to be done through an intermediary, a lawyer or some other representative. Um, number two, uh, there are, uh, they, the cross-examination does not require that the accuser and accused or the questioner and the, uh, the accuser be in the same room. It can be done uh, through video conferencing. Um, and I, I actually should add a third point, which is the normal rules, the so-called rape shield laws, there are limitations on the questions that can be asked of the people making the accusations about their previous sexual activity. Those are in place as well. So there are limits on the types of questions that can be asked. But the argument uh, that is made by Senator Murray uh, and many, many other people is that there should be no cross-examination of people making accusations uh, for the reason that that will discourage them from coming forward. And on the one hand, um, uh, I, I think that's probably true. Um, 
the fact that that uh, if you raise an accusation, you're going to be subject to cross-examination can be inhibiting. On the other hand, um, since these are usually cases not of so whether someone is lying or telling the truth, but of alternative interpretations of confusing events, it's hard to see how you get to a fair disposition of the case unless you allow for some type of cross-examination. So it is a dilemma. Uh, what's surprising is that the, the debate has taken on such uh, intensity. Um, and obviously this is a result of partisan polarization um, and the nature of the Trump presidency. Yes, I'm not sure how how surprising it is that it's uh, right. uh, yeah. the debate has taken on this this characteristic. Uh, let me ask about two other issues. You mentioned before the issue of the standard of proof that should be used when adjudicating these cases, and also the model of investigation. Uh, the Obama era guidance said that schools should use the preponderance of evidence standard. Uh, that is just which version of, ent of events is most likely in order to determine guilt or innocence, and also uh, encourage schools to use a single investigator model. Uh, how does the new proposal deal with those issues? I'll take the second first. That's easier. Basically, the new proposal says schools can't use a single investigator model. Um, they can't put all of the power to investigate and to make determinations of guilt or innocence in the hands of one person. That's a fundamental violation of due process. Um, the second point about uh, predominance of uh, the evidence, they do, the new regulations do not prohibit that. Uh, they allow schools to use the preponderance of the evidence rule unless the school um, uses a higher standard of proof for uh, violations that have a similar level of punishment. Um, so if you were to require clear and convincing evidence on, um, for plagiarism, but require a lower level of proof for sexual assault, um, the, according to the new regulations, you can't do that. You have to have equivalent uh, standard of proof for equivalent violations. So we now think we're approaching the end of the comment period when the public gets to weigh in on the proposed rules. This uh, period was originally scheduled to end on January 28th, but as I understand it, it's now been indefinitely postponed due to the government shutdown. How likely are we to see significant changes in response to the very large number of comments that the department is in the process of receiving on this rule? Uh, let me first say that I am uh, probably responsible for a bit of a uh, uh, mistake on the end of the comment period uh, because I don't follow Twitter. turns out that the end of the comment period is tomorrow, Wednesday. They just extended for two days. Um, and uh, as of a couple of days ago, there were 72,000 comments, uh, which is a remarkable number. Um, some of them um, very short and actually personal attacks on Secretary DeVos. Most, many of them much more detailed. Um, so the next step is the department is going to have to go through these in detail um, and according to court requirements, respond to all significant comments. This is going to take a long time. Um, I think we will see some changes. Um, one of the 
areas where they've invited comments is how there should be different rules for elementary and secondary schools and for colleges. Uh, we might see some major restructuring of the regulation um, in that regard. Um, my sense is they might be able to come up with more protections for uh, students who are making accusations when they're subject to cross-examination. Uh, that'll be an interesting one to follow. Um, and uh, it's important to keep in mind that the Office for Civil Rights has to make sure these are going to survive judicial review. So if there are substantial criticisms, they've got to show that they are responding adequately to them. Um, so there's going to be a lot of um, variation on the margin. Uh, it's hard to predict how much. And we should say for our listeners that we're recording this on Tuesday, January 29th. It's going to be released uh, tomorrow, January 30th. So if you're hearing this, it's actually today that you need to uh, go to the Department of Education's website and make your voice heard. Um, let's assume that you're right and that the changes in response to the comments once they occur are variations on the margin, that something similar to the proposed rule goes into effect, how are colleges likely to respond? One of the things that we know about large institutions is they don't change very rapidly. Most, of, most colleges have made substantial changes to put them in conformance with the Obama era regulations. Much of this does not need to be changed. Um, because uh, colleges can go well beyond um, the training, um, the services they provide, um, uh, extending the number of people who are re required to report sexual harassment accusations uh, and complaints. So much of that will remain in place. Um, the reason that the due process requirements have been so controversial is that does require schools to change. Um, but I would add that court decisions are requiring many of these changes anyway. Uh, so even if there's long delay in putting these regulations into place, as is likely to be the case, uh, schools could re uh, be getting a lot of pressure from the courts to do the same thing. I see some long-term changes in procedure. Most of the other things colleges have done, I don't think are going to change very much. And of course, one significant aspect of the proposed regulation is the simple fact that it's being issued using the notice and comment rulemaking process mandated by the Administrative Procedures Act. This was something that Betsy DeVos said was important to her when she announced her decision to rescind the Obama administration's guidance. Setting aside the rule's substance, is the fact that the department is adhering to the standard process a significant development, and is it a positive development in and of itself? I'd say it's both significant and positive. The Obama administration and the Bush administration, and to some extent uh, the Clinton administration, have all used dear colleague letters rather than notice and comment rulemaking. Um, one disadvantage of that um, has been that they can be easily rescinded. Um, and that's what uh, Betsy DeVos did in about a year ago. Um, the, as, as this notice and comment 
period um, proceeds, we can see how it really has spurred really important debate. It's allowed public participation. It's allowed new information to come forward. Uh, and I think that's a very positive development. It takes a long time. Uh, this uh, process is probably going to last for as much as two years. But these are really important issues, and I think that level of debate, discussion, and participation um, is, is well worth it. My guest today has been Chep Melnick, professor of American politics at Boston College and the author of The Transformation of Title IX. You can find his latest article on Title IX on our website at educationnext.org. Shep, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.